Hello, I'm Jill Yamasaki, the current editor of the Defining Moments Forum in the journal Health Communication and an associate professor of health communication in the Jack J. Valenti School of Communication at the University of Houston. I'm thrilled to be returning today as guest host for another episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Asha Winfield, an assistant professor in the Manship School of Mass Communication at Louisiana State University, where she is an affiliate member of the Department of African and African American Studies, as well as the founding director of the Storytellers Lab. Asha is a rising scholar in the fields of critical cultural media studies, Black feminism, and public health equity. Her research examines the meaning-making and identity-shaping stories of Black individuals and groups in communities in the media. In addition to health communication, her work has been published in Women's Studies and Communication, Digital Research Forums, and a variety of edited anthologies. She is also a filmmaker with a documentary entitled Black Experiences with COVID-19, Media, Mourning, and Faith, set to be released this year. I'll be talking with Asha today about her powerful essay, Body, Blood, and Brilliance, A Black Woman's Battle for Loud Healing and Strength, which evocatively details her embodied experiences as a Black scholar and woman living with uterine fibroids. Asha, your work is so incredibly meaningful and necessary, especially in today's climate, and I'm grateful we have this space to elevate your voice. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm way too excited to be here, but oh. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's wonderful to connect with you again. Um, we've kind of had similar paths in academia, so right. um, it's fun to be able to spend time talking with you about your work today. It is. I'm I'm ready. Great. <laughs> Well, okay, let's start then. Um, You begin your essay with a raw portrait of what you describe as a, quote, long day of hide and seek. Mm -hmm. For listeners who have not yet read your essay, please talk us through these lived realities with uterine fibroids. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, For me, as a storyteller and as a qualitative researcher, it's, it's so important for me uh, to make sure that my readers are right there with me in the moment. And I, I do that through storytelling. Um, and I started the essay with putting people right there with me. I wanted the reader to to feel what I felt in the classroom when I felt my fibroids doing the thing that they do every month. And they were impacting my day-to-day life. They were impacting just the every second of being engaged in, in the classroom. It was impacting... Um, my engagement with the conversation with my classmates when class was over all I could think about was did I make it through the class uh, was there evidence of what was happening in my body in, in my seat and could I make it to the bathroom um, just to recover myself it was a long day and and those moments inspired me to write I think it wasn't until that piece came out and it wasn't until I actually started telling my story on social media about all that I had been through that other people started sharing theirs with me. They were commenting, they were emailing and they were saying, oh, I went through the same thing or people who didn't even had not even been diagnosed with uterine fibroids were saying I experienced the same thing. And they were like, I think I think I need to go to the doctor as well. Um 
I think I found my voice in writing this article, but found my my courage in actually telling people this is what I was going through. They saw strength on the outside. They saw what seemed to be this normal everyday situation. But for me, I felt like I was dying on the inside and, and it was something I was inspired to write about. You know, your experiences resonated with me, too. Um, As a female academic, I lived for years with crippling endometriosis and the Mm. accompanying challenges and anxiety and humiliation of excessive, unpredictable bleeding in and out of the classroom. Mm. Um, But yet, of course, I can't relate to you in vitally important ways because I'm not a Black woman. Mm -hmm. Asha, could you please explain how your identity as a Black woman complicated and informed um, this journey of yours with uterine fibroids? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can say this. I wish that the other Black women in my life had told me that this was coming. And they didn't. It was it was so ingrained um, that we were to be strong, right? We, we hear about that, that stereotype and that, that trope, strong Black woman, but it shows up in our day-to-day. It shows up in our conversations with our health providers. It shows up even in how we care for ourselves. And so when I think about what it means to be a Black woman struggling with uterine fibroids, I think about all of the other Black women that I was introduced to who shared their story with me of healing, um, their stories of loud healing and their stories of silence um, and just trying to make it through the day, ignoring our own bodies to get things done for our families, for our friends, for our organizations, for our social groups. Um, I talked to cousins who never told me that they had fibroids until I shared my story. And I remember wishing that we felt comfortable to share our health history as much as we share our family history at family reunions, I wish that we felt comfortable enough to share what was happening on the inside of us um, in those moments where we're sharing all of our other good news, right? Because it, it saved lives. I wish that my cousins and I had had those moments earlier, right? So many of my cousins Um, These beautiful black women that I thought were, you know, just living the day to day and had no issues were telling me about their uterine fibroids, their endometriosis um, and so many other issues as it relates to their reproductive health that I wouldn't have known about um, unless we had shared our stories. Um, I can remember soon after this article was published hearing from one of my cousins in Houston, Texas, and she was telling me about um, her issues with infertility because of the uterine fibroids. And I remember thinking, wow, I had no idea. There's so many things I just had no idea that we stayed silent about. Not that it wasn't anybody else's business, but because it was just pain was so normalized. And it's unfortunate, but it is a reality that that we talk about in the Black community, normalizing pain without talking about healing or other interventions to help relieve it. Wow, that's really powerful. Um, and you said a couple things in there that I'd like to tease out because mm-hmm. I love the way you theorize. Um, Mm. So to start with, you talk about, you know, the trope of the strong black woman. Mm -hmm. And a quote from your essay, you said, um, my strong black womanhood is the equivalent to healing. Could you unpack Mm. that statement for us? Yeah, so many times 
throughout my life, I can remember hearing, oh, you're strong. Because I had been dealing with fibroids since I was in middle school. I was a young girl dealing with it. And they were like, oh, you're strong. They were wheeling me around in a wheelchair because I could not walk because I was in so much pain. And people were like, oh, you're strong. You got this. Or it's not that bad. And and that I... I equated my silence to my strength. But what I found out much later in life, and this was decades later, um, was that my strength actually came from my voice. I found strength and courage to fight for my life when I began to share my story. And yes, it makes people uncomfortable when you're talking about cervix and the uterus and all things vagina, okay? People get real uncomfortable <laughs> yes. when you start talking about pads and tampons and diapers. Yeah, people get real uncomfortable. But I think in those uncomfortable moments where we're talking about what is happening to the body and with the body and recognizing that something is not normal, that we get the healing that we need, that our, our true strength is in our voice. And that's why we cannot remain silent. There is, there's death in silence. I think if I had normalize my pain any more than I, I don't know that I would be here. I, I can remember my doctor telling me that she didn't know how I was making it. My blood count was so low. My hemoglobin was low. Um, my, they knew that my iron was low, but I was losing so much blood every month that no amount of iron infusions could help me keep up unless I had a surgery or unless I changed or use some other method for decreasing the fibroids or removing them altogether. Um, and it took strength, right? It took not some superhuman strength, but it took um, me realizing that my healing was on the other side of my voice and I needed to amplify it. I needed to advocate for myself um, and that there was strength in that. My strength came from my voice. What a powerful statement that I think everyone needs to hear. And what I think um, is largely at the heart of the Defining Moments Forum that yeah. you know Lynn Harder started and continues to, to share um, via this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love that. And similarly, I also love your concept of loud healing. Yeah. I, I think that is just fabulous. Um, um, explain what you mean by that, by loud healing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I take us back to the church house. Can I do that? Yes, please. <laughs> um, and I can remember when the saints of old would get together for testimony service. And I remembered how they would share their stories. And a lot of times during testimony service, they were talking about their health issues. Um, and they would be given glory and honor and they would go into a shout, okay, when they started feeling good, when they thought about all that they had been through. And so when I think about Loud Healing, I think about testimony service. I think about us using our voices to advocate for ourselves, to say that I don't feel good, I don't feel like this is normal and I need help and I'm going to do what I need to do in order to get that help. I'm going to find the help that I need. I'm going to find the support and the resources in order to live, right? That there has to be life on the other side of this pain. Um, and that our pain does not have to be normalized in the sense that we don't care for ourselves. Like, oh, that's normal. It'll be okay. 
no, 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 no. We have to use our experiences to help other folks. That's a part of loud healing. Uh, we use our testimonies our, or what we call our health narratives, if you will, um, to empower our own health advocacy and our own health behaviors um, and to ask for what we need from our healthcare uh, providers. It's necessary. If I hadn't asked for a myomectomy, I don't know that I would, would have got one. Um, if I hadn't asked what were my options, because I had been going to doctors for years and they equated my healing to, well, are you in a relationship? Are you trying to have a child right now? And I was like, please tell me, please tell me that y'all are not telling me that I'm not worthy of healing unless I have a partner in my life or unless I'm married to someone who is willing to impregnate me immediately. And, and that's the, the gist of what I got. The doctors were like, well, if you aren't worried about having a child anytime soon, then we can just solve this with this. We can solve this with this, with this medicine or with this, um, instead of other interventions. And, and we ended up trying other interventions and, and it did not work. Uh, but it, it was truly heartbreaking when one of the um, doctors told me that if I wasn't trying to get pregnant within the next two years, then I really didn't need to worry about my womb. And it broke my heart. It really did. But I decided to advocate for myself. I, I used my voice to say, no, I'm not going to stay in pain for two or three or four more years until I find a partner that I want to marry and have a child with or find somebody that I want to have a child with within the next couple of years. Please don't tell me that you're telling me I have to stay in pain and to bleed out until I find someone to have a child with. Um it was unfortunate. It really broke me down. And it, it happened twice. It happened two times where uh, two physicians said, if I wasn't worried about having a child, then I didn't really have to worry about my, my uterus or the fibroids that were inside. And I felt, I felt like I wasn't seen. Um, and loud healing brings about visibility where we find a physician who sees all of us culturally, racially, um, to see every part of me and say, I'm going to help you, whether you're trying to have a child today or in three years. I was still in my doctoral program when I had my fibroid surgery. Um, yeah, and your story really points to the paternalistic nature of medicine mm -hmm. and even the academy in a lot of ways. Right. Um, so what... How did you find your voice? You know, you talk about how people, you know, black people in families don't really talk about their health or their health problems. What what compelled you to use your voice? Uh, I felt like I was dying. I really did. Um, and I had to have some really hard conversations with my parents about what was happening with me. Uh, my mother is a pharmacist and my dad is a retired barber. Well, they're both retired now. Um, but my mother had gone through the same thing and her mother too. And we hadn't really had a conversation about genetics or about how these things have passed down through our generation, right? It was just assumed that this was normal. Uh, mama had to go through it. Aunts went through it. Cousins went through it. Like, you will make it. Um, it wasn't until I started telling them that I think I want to have a surgery, a fibroid surgery, that they started telling me about other cousins who had had surgeries. 
Um, and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, your cousin so-and-so had to have a surgery. Or, you know, your other cousin had to have a hysterectomy, right? Um, and it wasn't until then that we actually started connecting the things. And it really, it blew my mind. And I realized if I'm not asking the questions, we, they aren't going to have the conversation. Uh, and so it means I have to be uncomfortable but the only way to live is to be uncomfortable in those moments so that I can get the information that I need in order to get the results that I want. You know, the doctors ask us about our family history, but I think sometimes they want to know about hypertension or other comorbidities. They want to know about diabetes or cholesterol, but I don't, I can't ever remember any of them asking me, has your mother had a fibroid surgery? Does your mother have fibroids or any other reproductive health issues? Um, do you have anyone else in the family who has had fibroids that have affected them like this? And I think had they asked me earlier on, I would I'm, I hope that I would have asked those questions, but those questions never came from my providers. And I think being curious enough to say, I really want to live and I don't want to live like this anymore, um, it empowered me to amplify my voice and my curiosity, to ask the questions of my parents. Um, I can remember my daddy is a preacher, okay? And I can remember being in the pharmacy with him the first time I had to get birth control <laughs> because that was the thing that was they told me was going to help slow down the bleeding because I was bleeding so much that I would have to leave class. Um, and this was in my undergraduate days. And my daddy looked at me in the CVS line, okay? <laughs> 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 he looked at those boxes and I was like, Daddy, I don't, you know, I don't want you to think I'm out here doing anything. At the time, I really needed him to know. I didn't need him to think I was, you know, in college, right. enjoying the college experience, <laughs> if you will. Um, I wasn't quite ready for that conversation. But I, I let him know, I was like, Daddy, I'm getting this medicine because I need some hope. I thought for the longest, if I prayed about it, right, if this came from my spirituality, if I prayed about it, that certainly if I prayed enough, if I fasted enough, if I really believed hard enough that this issue would go away. And that is not how my healing came. And it transformed how I saw um, health narratives and storytelling. It transformed how I saw the use of our voices and our experiences to empower others to, to do what needed to be done to live longer, to do, to still be able to walk in purpose, right? It was, it felt like a cultural shock. I don't know if that's the right word to use, the right phrase, but it shook me to the core to realize that my healing wasn't coming in the way that I thought that it was, that I was going to have to depend on on my voice that I was going to have to depend on advocating for myself. I was going to have to talk back to the doctors and let them know that I want to live and it's not going to be on these terms. And I'm so glad that in those seasons I was able to find one or two doctors in the places where I was getting my education who said I see you and we're going to get you some help. Um but it was a lot of trial and error, a whole lot of trial and error. I can remember doctors telling me, oh, you can't be in that much pain. We're not here. We're not that kind of drug company. I remember one of them, one of the doctors saying, you cannot be in that much pain. You you can't you can't need these kind of medicines. And I, I wanted to I wanted them to feel what I felt. How can you say that to me? I'm out here passing out. I'm losing so much blood. I am 
having to change tampons and pads every hour, sometimes every two hours, cramping so much that I'm seeing blue and green spots. Um, and he's telling me that I cannot be in that much pain. It was unreal. It was unreal. But I can remember being in other classes where the students were saying, oh, we learned that black women don't experience pain that much. And I couldn't believe it, but I could. It was in textbooks. Um, but I, I remember those moments and I remember how they changed me. They changed me forever. My prayer went from, Lord, heal me with, from this to, Lord, give me what I need to find the healing. Show me what that looks like. Connect me to the right people. Show me the way to go. Right. Um, and you found that. And now you are writing about your experiences and sharing your story, which in a way will be healing for so many others who are where you were, you know, seeking answers, seeking to be understood. And I, I think that is just so incredibly powerful. Um, yes. You know, Asha, your essay offers such a wonderful example of what feminist scholars call intersectionality of identity. And I know mm -hmm. you study this as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're never just one identity at a time. We all live in the intersection of so many aspects of who we are and how others see us. Mm -hmm. And you capture this idea so powerfully when you say, quote, for me, the negotiation of identity meant choosing which parts of me received the attention and care, mm. my black body, my brilliant mind, or my bloody condition. Ooh. I know, it's beautiful, <laughs> your words. <laughs> and as I'm listening to you now, I'm just struck by how you were able to somehow negotiate mm -hmm. so you could amplify all of those identities in right. your loud healing. No, absolutely. And I think I can remember that there were moments in this process and it was over 10 years trying to find healing and it's yet ongoing. Right. Um, I can remember wondering, do I need to tell the doctors that I'm a Ph.D. candidate? Do I need to tell them I'm a doctoral student? Do I need to tell them that I'm an instructor or a professor for them to listen to me? Or will they think that I'm trying to outsmart them like how will I play this? When I think about intersectionality, I think, right, that we have these identities that intersect and we are complex, right? But I also think about the oppressions that happen when they do intersect, when all of my blackness and all of my womanhood come together. Um, what does that look like when they see me in my embodied existence? What what types of oppressions will I then experience because of my complex identity, because of every aspect of myself that shows up? It shows up there. There really ain't no hiding some of it. OK, <laughs> um, but it shows up. What is it? What does it look like for me to be in the doctor's office and wonder okay, who do I need to be? Not so much playing a backstage, front stage role, but who do I need to be in order to get the healing that I need? Um, do I need to be persistent today? Yes, I need to be persistent. Do I need to let them know that my family, I now know that my family has a history of fibroids and other uterine issues? Yeah, I do. That That is a part of, of the loud healing. It's being informed for myself and then informing, you know, my PCP and letting them know here, here's what's happening. Here are the goals that I have and being empowered to say, here's, here's the results I'm looking for. Um, 
and hoping that we're on the same page, really and truly. That's just wonderful. Um, And I hope we can all be empowered like you are um, with our doctors. Mm. Um, As part of your body of work, you know, this essay um, prominently talks about um, the importance of stories, as does your work. You know, your work Mm -hmm. draws on the cultural significance of storytelling within Black communities. Mm -hmm. And you theorize about quote, black living room pedagogy. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I think that just beautifully encapsulates ideas that stories are seen, heard, constructed, and examined, both culturally, like through the media, Mm -hmm. but then also interpersonally, you know, as we sit with our families or friends in the living room um, with the TV over family meals. So unpack that a little bit for us, um, because I'm just fascinated by that idea. Absolutely. So Black Living Room Pedagogy came out of my dissertation work. Um, And in the process of preparing for my dissertation, which was on Black women's biopics, um, the construction of it from Hollywood and then also the audience reception with Black women um, who are situated so beautifully, right, to to really discuss what it means to see people who look like you historically. Uh, What does it mean for us to construct our own self-identity, right? To confront and interrogate our own identity with the identities that we see Hollywood is constructing through Black biopics. Uh, But Black Living Room Pedagogy came out of my own living room, right? And I do say in my dissertation that Black Living Room Pedagogy is not just happening in the living room. It happens where we gather, where we feel most at home, where we feel most comfortable to share um, our most true self and to be able to question our identity, to question our existence historically and presently. Um, Black Living Room Pedagogy came out of sitting with my parents and watching Black biopics because they felt comfortable watching that with us. It's a lot of stuff on TV, um, even more now than it was in the 90s, okay? Yeah. (laughs) And yes, it was. Yes, it was. But my parents felt comfortable um, in the 90s and early 2000s to sit down with us when Black biopics came on so that we could talk about our Black history. It was really those moments sitting with them and with my twin brother uh, where I got so much learning, where I was able to ask the questions because my parents lived it, right? They were alive in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and they could also interrogate and complicate the images that we were seeing and the stories that we were seeing in the media. And so Black Living Room Pedagogy was born in, in 1989, if you will, okay? <laughs> but it came to fruition um, in 2020 and 2021, um, because I realized in doing the research that my experience wasn't unique, that there were so many other black families who were taking the time, whether it was in the movie theater or whether it was in their homes and they were watching it together. They were talking back to the screen as some of our sociologists friends would say, right? Um, they were talking back to the screen. They were they were asking questions of their family members. It was very intergenerational. And that's what I love about Black Living Room Pedagogy and that it includes the entire family, right? Um, it's intergenerational. It includes 
aunts and uncles. But what I loved about my dissertation um, in those focus groups is that we put everything in context. I was doing my dissertation data collection in the middle. I don't know if it's the middle, but in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Um, everything about what I thought my, my dissertation was going to look like, it flipped. COVID was like, absolutely not. That's not happening. We're not doing that. You're going to have to do everything online. And so I ended up online and it was the best thing for me. I got to talk to so many women across the country. And even though we were in different places regionally, what remained the same was our use of media, uh, specifically black women's biopics, right? That the black women were saying, oh, I go to my mama. If I'm watching a show and, and I want to know if it's true or not, if that's her experience or if this is real, can I use these stories to um, to inform my own life? I go to my mama. Right. And I'm like, wow, OK, this is this is something that needs to be talked about, how we 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 gather together to talk back to each other to the screens and to our own existence. And I think what came out of the Black Living Room pedagogy was this mirror to mirror um, situation that happens after we leave those gatherings, right? How do you reckon with your own living memory after encountering some parts of history that have been um, excluded from our curriculum? What, is it, what does it mean when we see these black biopics and we realize this was not taught in school? Um, another thing that I love about black biopics, and it came out when we were talking about black living room pedagogy, was that a lot of these black, black women's biopics specifically also talked about black women's health, right? Um, I think about Madam C.J. Walker's biopic that came out on Netflix, and they were talking about her health issues, right? Kidney failure, I think it was, um, and how she wanted to maintain this strong persona. She wanted to continue doing the work and, and ended up, you know, yeah. Um, they also talked to, I also talked about the Clark sisters and how their mother had diabetes and also went through some health issues that we were able to talk about later in the focus group. So I think, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that happen when we gather. Um, and it allowed me to really think about what does it mean to have sister circles online? Cause that's, that's what we were doing. This methodology called sister circles. Um, but then I thought about what am I actually doing? when it's on zoom right so when we historically have thought about sister circles it's meant that we've gathered face to face usually um and that we were able to talk about these topics on these focused topics together um in unison if you will um but with doing it online i said well what if these are sister squares in that <laughs> in these zoom calls on these zoom calls we have framed our identities and ourselves um, to show exactly what we want to show inside of this frame, right? It's not quite a square, it's somewhat of a rectangle, but square stuck with me. So go with me, y'all. Go with me. <laughs> the alliteration. I okay. Like <laughs> um, but the sister squares allow for them to bring to the table, if you will, exactly what they wanted to, to be shown and to be represented as. So there was so much framing that was happening. And it was beautiful to me. The women 
where were bringing their children to the focus groups. So they brought that to the sister square. They situated themselves in their offices or in their homes. They had posters and it felt like they were very intentional about what they wanted to show. And that was another aspect of sister circles that I hadn't encountered before. But with sister squares, it felt very intentional that these women were willing to show themselves, to show all of themselves, but they framed it in a way that this is exactly what you're going to see um, from me and of me today as I interact with these women. And it was an awesome experience. That is wonderful. Oh. I really like that idea of sister squares, especially in today's, you know, COVID mm-hmm. um, digital space. Absolutely. Um, and so, and that also brings me to um, some of your documentary work. Yes. Um, what I really appreciate, and, you know, as a fellow qualitative feminist scholar, um, mm-hmm. I try to do the same. You know, we work to privilege participant voices. Right. But what I especially love is when scholars um, are drawn to multisensorial uh, storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, um, going beyond just the written word. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your documentary work and particularly why you're drawn to that medium and what that does for you and for your participants who are sharing their experiences on film. Mm, absolutely. I, who we, it's heavy work, right? It's, I, I call it my heart work, if you will. Um, in that documentaries have always played a, a beautiful part in my life. I love a documentary and they, they bring me home when I think about, um, how our parents wanted to educate us. They may not have always had the language, but they, they had the tools, right? We, we were out here watching PBS together. Okay. Um, my parents don't have PhDs, but they empowered us through the visual. They empowered us through storytelling. Um, and I wanted to use those tools to amplify the voices of what was happening around me. I can remember in 2020 when everything started happening. Um, and it happened so quickly. And I just remember thinking after one of my friend's mothers passed away from COVID in New York, um, and he was finishing up his dissertation. He was my peer mentor. And I remember thinking, I wish I had the space to capture, not just to capture, but to just share the space with him and others that I care about to see what this moment means for them. I, I, I felt like Facebook was an okay space. We were able to watch people's stories if they felt like turning the camera onto themselves or to share through the written word. But I felt like other people needed to see this. I felt like the academy needed to know that black folks were not okay around the globe. And in America, they were not okay. We went from thinking, oh, we can't catch this. I remember the week that everybody was joking. Oh, black folks can't catch it. We're not going to catch it. And then all of the NBA teams started canceling games because they got it. And it became so real it went from oh we can't catch it and everybody was joking about it we can't contract it to oh you can contract it and it's impacting black folks the most so maybe you need to abide by the public health departments and what they're saying and you need to do it now um i remember seeing so many people on facebook who were sharing their stories and and many of them 
passed away and I wanted to use the space that I had as a student at Texas A&M um, to create something that we could look back on so that we would never forget these moments or the people that we loved. I remember seeing the numbers and they were rising every single day. And I know how important numbers are to a lot of our researchers and they are important. But to me, that there were names attached to those numbers and lives that and people that we love that we could never get back. We will never get them back. And so I wanted to, to make the space and I wanted to create a documentary so that we could honor the people that we had lost while also making space to tell the stories about people who remained who were still impacted by the pandemic, whether they contracted COVID-19 or not. Um, and so I put out a call. Um, one of the centers on campus, the Glasscock Center for Humanities Research, put out a call saying that they were doing grants for anybody doing COVID-19 research. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to apply. I'm going to see if I can get some funds so that I can help the people as they tell me their stories. Um, and I got about 30 people within two weeks who said, hey, I will help you. I had people in California, in New York, in Texas, in Louisiana, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in D.C. Um, all of them were saying, I have a story and I want to tell it to you. I had funeral directors. I had um, teachers, nurses, doctors, people who contracted it once and twice, right? again and again. Um, I had people who were still trying to survive, but their lives were forever changed, right? We, we see it in the data, but what does it mean to hear the stories of people who say, now I have asthma, or I still can't, uh, my sense of smell and taste are still gone a year later, right? Um, I wanted people to hear their stories. I don't, I didn't just want them to, to hear the line, oh, it's impacting Black Americans um, greater than any other demographic. But how is it, right? And so um, in that documentary, I was able to sit down and talk to people. And we cried together. And I was telling my my graduate students in class on, on last Friday, and they were asking, what does it mean to have a poker face in these moments? And I said, y'all, I know what the text is saying, but let me tell you, as a qualitative scholar, I have cried with my participants. And I cried during the documentary making because some of these people I knew I sang in the choir with some of these people. Um, I talked to a pastor who said he did 10 funerals in one week. And he said he'll never be the same. He will never be the same. Um, that his hope was still intact. But to see that many people in your city, and Beaumont, isn't, it isn't that big. Big Money, Texas is not that big. Um, we knew the people. We knew their names. We, we knew their lives. And to know that they would never be with us again, um, they deserve tears. I didn't have a poker face like I wanted to. I allowed myself to be a human. I, I'm not a machine. And so in that documentary, there are clips of me tearing up a little bit when I heard about some of the stories where um, people were being turned away because their insurance wasn't accepted at a hospital and they died a week later. Um, well, I mean, I, as a qualitative scholar myself, I think it's your humanity that makes you a great scholar. Right. Um, the fact that you cried with your participants, I mean, this is your community as well. And right. I think that, you know, that enables them to share their stories, which are so important. Absolutely. I can remember after a few of them, they thanked me. And I was like, what are you thanking me for? And they were like, I hadn't had the space 
to grapple with all of the feelings of losing my grandmother or I hadn't had the space to to really sit down and think about what it meant to lose my friend and to know I'll never see them again and you know I'm not I'm no licensed health you know mental health professional but I appreciate that research allowed me to have space with people for us to remember through storytelling um, what it meant. I am, I'm in the process of filming year two now. When we filmed it in, in 2020 on Zoom, I thought, okay, we'll be in and out of this. We'll show this documentary so we can remember it from for forever, right? I had no idea that in 2021, I would be collecting interviews to see how they were doing a year later. I had no idea in 2022, I would be collecting interviews saying, it's been two years, tell me how y'all are doing, right? And what empowers me to continue to do it is that people that I interviewed in 2020, at least two of them are no longer with us. And I feel... I feel the pressure. I feel like I am the story carrier and I cannot let their stories die with me. I can't, I just can't. If, if I ever think that I'm too tired to continue to do this work, I remember their names. I remember their stories. I remember the moments that we had together. Um, and I know that I want the world to know their names. I want them to know about the lives that they lived and I want them to see those moments. They died less than a year later after that interview. And I don't ever want us to forget, you know, and it's important to me. And I think this research has given me voice to to turn on the mic for others, as I say. They already have voice, right? They already have an existence, but it allows me to say, hey, y'all, this is happening here and these people have a story to tell. Um, yeah, another yeah. beautiful example of loud healing. Um, That's it. That's yes, it. I love mm-hmm. it so much. Um, another um, thought for you. You know, we've reached a point of reckoning in both our country with the Black Lives Matter movement and mm-hmm. in our discipline with mm. um, hashtag calm so white. We. Um, and in a time that's shining light on harsh inequities and mainstream invisibilities, mm-hmm. um, and you're talking about giving people space, you know, to tell their voice, right now silence really equals complicity. Mm-hmm. And Pat's statements of support are just no longer enough. And you end your essay um, with a similar call to action. So what do you, Asha, as a brilliant, bloody black woman and scholar need and even expect from colleagues, clinicians, practitioners and activists as you do your loud healing and make space for others to do theirs? Yeah, I, I think and I think you said it right. It takes more than ooh, it takes more than these well-crafted Okay. Uh, Well-crafted stories, uh, well-crafted statements. And you can't just have the statements after we lose someone publicly. We can't just have statements during Black History Month because there are many. There, there are many. I mean, there's an appreciation for it, but, but also we understand strategic communications. Amen. Um, I think what's important is visibility. And to really, to really, really see people um, and not ask them to change or mute any parts of themselves in order to be able to show up in your space. 
Um, I tell my students, I want y'all to show up as your as yourself. I will never ask you to hide any part of yourself in order to engage in communication with me or to engage the research or even to 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 do the work that we're doing. Um, I think that so much has happened in our country and there is still a washing. Okay. <laughs> there's still a washing. Um, there, there's still, there's still a washing. And I think what's important for the work that we do is to allow these counter stories and counter narratives, right. Um, to show us a reality, even if it isn't our own. Right. Um, I appreciate the work that so many scholars are doing, um, especially in vulnerable populations and minoritized, historically underrepresented communities um, to give us a different look. Right. We talk we talk so often about stereotypes and we talk so often about um, negative portrayals. But who's creating the positive ones? Who is informing us with the voices of the people with their lived experience? Uh, Black feminist epistemologies has has taught us so much. OK. Um, and that they weren't the only ones um, who told us to listen, to listen to the people. Um, to empower their lived ex lived experiences as knowledge production, to not minimize those lived experiences, to not tell us that it's not rigorous enough, to tell us that it's not good enough if it doesn't include numbers. Oh, no, it's good. And it will work. And it will teach us and it will inform us. I think we have to look differently at the canon and whose voices have historically been the ones that we look to when it's time to educate even our future researchers and scholars, right? It happens in the classrooms, it happens in our families, and it happens in the work that we do. Um, I can remember the essay that I'm working on now. <laughs> I'm not going to tell on nobody's journal, I'm not. But I can remember <laughs> that my collaborators and I were looking for space to talk about what does it mean for us to create this public health documentary and to, to lift up black voices and black experiences in the middle of a pandemic. And there were so many different journals who were saying, oh no, this isn't the right space for this. This not, is not the right space for this. Um, and it's interesting because this was 2022. I'm not calling y'all out in case y'all are listening, all right? I'm just saying it's interesting where stories are given space where black stories are given space, especially as it relates to who is, which groups are vastly, it's, it's, it's crazy how much black folks are experiencing um, these devastated numbers and statistics around, around COVID-19. And, and so often we've heard the news talk about underlying conditions, but being black is not an underlying condition. We have to look more deeply at, at critical, critical race public health. We have to look more deeply at the systemic and institutional levels of oppression that are happening in order for there to exist these, these other elements that are impacting black communities as it relates to COVID-19. And so when when I think about the work that we do, it, it takes journals, it takes editorial boards, it takes um, administrators, it takes instructors um, to really make space to give space and to see it as valuable. Everybody's talking about doing the work, but it has to be more than just a 500 word statement during Black History Month or any other month, okay? In March and in June, y'all hear me, okay? So. <laughs> 
Um, it takes more. And October, let me call them all out. So it, it takes more than those those really nice and cute statements where we get all of the letters correct and all of the acronyms and we know what means what. It takes more than that. It takes seeing people's experiences as valuable, as worthy, and to be willing to sit down and listen to it and say that they're there's worth here and there's something to learn here, even if it's different from what I've learned and, and what I know. Um, we, we can't lose that curiosity and that care in the work that we do. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and you just keep doing your hard work because um, you are going to be moving mountains and I hope others follow and do the same um, because you're absolutely right. We need more of these voices. We need um, more representation and we need more acknowledgement of the worthiness Mm. of um, voices that have for so long been silenced for, um, for too long, for too long. Exactly. You know, the value of them, their experiences that we don't even get to, to learn about. Um, Mm -hmm. So yes, that's a, that's a big call to action and, I will be doing my part and I expect Mm -hmm. others to as well because we need to change. We need the change. It's time. It's time. It's absolutely time. So let's come full circle um, and wrap this up. But with your, in your essay, you poignantly illustrate how your personal identities have compelled your professional work. And we've heard about Mm -hmm. that today in this conversation, the amazing heart work you're doing and the loud healing you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but in turn, how has your work transformed you personally? Mm, that's a good question, Gia. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Oh, it's it's changed me in every in every aspect. I think it's changed me as a scholar. I went in thinking that I would be a certain kind of scholar doing certain kind of work, and I was introduced to to so much more right i can remember and i'm gonna take us down memory lane i can remember the day that you came to our classroom Mm. (laughs) and and you showed your documentary right and you were talking about these defining moments um and let me know if i'm wrong because sometimes a lot has happened since 2018 2018 2019 (laughs) Uh, i think that was 2018 was it 2018 yeah i think so um, and I can remember you telling us how important it was to have these defining moments essays and to make space for them. Um, you said that you would help us if we needed it. Um, and you showed us where to go and how to do it. And I remember thinking, man, I really want to do this. There are so many stories I want to tell. And that was before I had had my myomectomy, right? Um, I was still dealing with everything. Um, but writing about my experiences has almost made me what I like to call an accidental advocate. Like I wasn't out here trying to, trying to do too much. I was just trying to live. Um, but the response from so many people who read the work, it didn't, it gave me the fuel I needed to keep doing it. Um, even if other people read it and they didn't understand it, it has opened up so many avenues for me to tell other people that there is work to be done. Um, and when I think about how me search, if we will, if me search has changed, not my identity, but it's allowed me to be free, right? 
I, I wouldn't trade anything for that freedom. That one publication has given me at least eight or nine different opportunities to speak at different universities. Wow. I, I have spoken to um, doctoral students. I have spoken at um, to pre-med students. And they were talking about care, ethics and care. And I shared with them the care that was lacking in some of my treatment. And it... It changed me and it changed them. I think about the emails that I received after some of those speaking engagements where I'm telling people that if you're going to be a doctor, and I'm not talking about PhD, I'm talking about MD now. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're going to be a doctor, then there's some care and some consideration that we have to take. We can't treat everybody like a number. Even if you see all of these people who have all of these same symptoms, it's new to them. It's unique to them. And so we can't forget about the care in the care that we're given about really seeing people. Um, I think about the documentaries that I'm doing and how it, I feel like it gave power to some of my participants. I was doing barbershop documentaries in 2018 and I went around Houston for a whole weekend interviewing black women barbers and they felt so seen the response of them just participating they didn't want any money they didn't want any compensation compensation they appreciated being seen in that moment because in their field they didn't always have that visibility they didn't always have their voice and their experience seen um, even in the historical black barbershop so the work that i'm doing is is not just for me it's for my community, but it's also for the academy, right? We talk about these arts-based research methods, and people look at it like it's less. And I'm like, y'all don't understand the hard work that goes into it. Um, we talk about public-facing scholarship, and I'm like, y'all, I, I need for people who will never get a PhD to understand the work that's happening because it, it it's about them. It affects them, right? Um, I want people who are in my daddy's age group to be able to see a documentary and fully understand the research projects that I'm doing. And that's so important to me um, for them to, to have it. I want 80 year olds and 60 and 70 year olds who will never step foot on Texas A&M's campus or Louisiana State University to know exactly what my research about research is about and to know that I care about them and I care about interventions that impact their health, that I care about how this how this pandemic has changed their life forever. I want them to know that research, even though there's a, a wild history with research, especially as it relates to the black community, that there are people who have changed and, and that the system, parts of the system are trying to change so that those those instances never, ever happen again. Um, I want when they think about research for them to think, oh, this is an opportunity for me to share something about myself so that pieces of me will remain even when I'm gone from this earth. And, and that's important. That's important for the work for the work that I do. Right now it's documentaries and research papers, okay? Uh, but maybe one day it'll be informing, you know, Ava DuVernay on a, you know, a movie. I don't know. I'm putting it out <laughs> in the atmosphere in case she's listening. Absolutely. Um. <laughs> Asha, you embody the best of narrative theorizing and scholarship. I have oh. nodded so emphatically throughout this conversation. Oh. Um, and I'm kind of sad that it's coming to a close. Um, oh. 
But thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for sharing um, with our listeners today. Uh, You're very inspiring and keep it up. Thank you, Jill. And thank you for having me. Um, If it did anything for the listeners, I'm, I'm grateful. You know, I appreciate the space to be able to share my own story. So thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Asha. And thank you, listeners, for joining Dr. Asha Winfield and me, Jill Yamasaki, for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is co-hosted by Lynn Harder and Joe Bianco and produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WOUB. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Asha's essay and her professional website, where you can view her film and photography projects, including the trailer to her documentary on Black experiences with COVID-19. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go in peace and love one another. <laughs>